Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for singing out. It was a rich blessing. Some of you have never experienced the front row in that way. It's different up here. It is. With all the voices washing over you, I, I tell you, y'all should be fighting over these seats up here. All right, turn to Luke. Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read from verses 26 to 38, and then we'll look mostly at verses 31 to 35. We won't exhaust them, I promise you. In the sixth month of what? Elizabeth's pregnancy. The angel Gabriel was sent from from God to a city of Galilee up in the north named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we have your word in our language. That we can hold and read and treasure and know you through. So we pray for your blessing even this morning. Help me to preach your word truly and accurately in the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God. Help us to hear it as your word. Loving it, seeking to love you through it and live in the light of your revelation, your truth, your word. Change us, Lord. Remind us. Renew us. Revive us. Convert us. Sanctify us. Do a mighty, mighty work. Mighty, mighty work through the preaching of your word. So bless the preaching and the hearing of the word of God. It is in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. On February the 22nd, 1732, Augustine and Mary Washington welcomed a son into the world. They named him George. 
George spent his childhood at Ferry Farm where his father grew tobacco, corn, and wheat. There he learned the importance of hard work and efficiency. George never went to college. Private tutors and possibly a local school provided all the education that he would formally receive. And throughout his life, George felt keenly embarrassed by his lack of education. He privately admitted that he was conscious, conscious of a, defective, a defection in his education. However, without some of the advantages of his peers and contemporaries, he would go on to be a war hero, a statesman, an author, and eventually the first president of the United States. You see, he was born for greatness, but you have never known it by the circumstances of his birth in early life. See, during this time of year, we celebrate and think about and remember and grow deeper in the true and greater birth of the extraordinary child that is above all others. This child was the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world, and He was Lord at His birth. But you would have never known it, looking at the circumstances, born in a mean estate and a low estate, Humbled, laid in a feed trough, Lord at His birth. See, as, as, as has been our habit, we're going to take these four weeks in December running up to Christmas and, and talk about the Incarnation. Try to get a better grasp on the Incarnation. Try to grow in appreciation that, that Christ, the eternal Son of God, would take on a true human nature to come and save us. So today we're going to look at no, the title of the series is No Ordinary Birth. Today it'll be No Ordinary Child. Next week, No Ordinary Announcement. Then No Ordinary Welcome. December 21st, No Ordinary Reaction. And then we're going to finish it up on December the 31st with No Ordinary Call. What does he ask of us since he has come to save us. But again, today, no ordinary child, primarily from verses 31 to 35 of Luke. We want to see this. Jesus was no ordinary child because of his mission, because of his greatness, and because of his purity. First, no ordinary child because of his mission. Look, in, look back in the, in the text with me and just remember that um, Mary has received a greeting. She is a virgin. She's received a greeting. Who knows what she's in her home doing? I don't know. Was she going to bed? Was she cooking? Was she sweeping the floor? What was she doing? And suddenly, there's an angel in the house talking to her. And what do they always say? Don't be afraid. You know why? People are always afraid. Mary was freaked out. That's southern lingo. It says she was greatly troubled, but, I, you know, contextualized. And she's trying to discern what kind of greeting this is. And listen, imagine that, though. We just read over stuff like this. We, we just go through it and don't really think deeply about it. But whatever, imagine you're doing whatever you're doing in the middle of the day, and then suddenly, bang, there's Gabriel 
Greetings, favored one. Whoa. You'd be greatly troubled too. You'd be confused too and scared and all of this mixed up. And when it first happens, you don't know who this is, why they're there. Are you crazy? What's going on here? But he says to her, look at it in verse 28. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. That word for favored is the word for grace. Greetings, O graced one. The Lord is with you. And then again in verse 30. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Again, charis, grace. You have found grace. What is the implication of that? You don't deserve this. But you have, God has been gracious to you. All right, so what is this all about? This, this, this appearance and this greeting and this gracing of Mary is about the angel telling her the content of what it means that she's been favored. She's been graced. In verse 31. Look first at no ordinary, or at an ordinary name. This, this was an ordinary name. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. But in verse 31, you, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So again, he gets right to it. After telling her not to be afraid, after telling her he's found, she's found grace with the Lord, he, he, he lays this first nugget on her. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will name him Jesus. Why did I say that? See, that's anything but an ordinary name to us, isn't it? We hear Jesus and we think of the Lord. But that Jesus in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Joshua, Yeshua, you've heard that. That means Joshua. And Joshua was, was, was among, among the Jews in the first century. It was a very common name. A lot of people named the Hebrews. A lot of Jews named their sons Yeshua or Joshua. And the meaning there of that name is the Lord saves. So just like in our culture, you know, John, Paul. I'm not beginning to name the Beatles, by the way. These are common names. This was a very, very common name. This was even the name that was foreshadowing something, though. It was telling. Names told you something about the person. When God, God's names in the Bible tell you things about him. That's why he has more than one name. That's why Jesus has more than one name. But he tells her, you shall call his name Jesus. Because he's going to fulfill that name. He's going to be the true and greater, the greatest Joshua. His name reveals an extraordinary mission. Look with uh, Matthew one twenty one. You know, the angel had to comfort Joseph in a different way, in a dream, right? But one of the things the angel says, he says this in verse 21, talking about Mary, taking Joseph's fears to marry her away. He said, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And then we get a little more information for he might save his people from their sins. 
Notice there's no, no guessing here. He will save his people from his sins. That's why you're calling him the Lord saves. That's the name of Yeshua. That's the name of Jesus, Greek, Yeshua, Hebrew, named Joshua. The reason you're going to name him that is because he's the one who's going to save his people from their sins. So the meaning of the name Jesus, the Lord saves, he will be that one. Finally, that that name has been portraying. He reveals the name he's to have and the name signifies the extraordinary mission that he will have. And notice, look, look back at that verse a little bit. I'm, I, I played with it a little bit. Look at the definiteness of this. He will save his people from their sins. Not he might. Not that he'll make it possible. Not that he's just going to provide this sort of general atonement and leave it up to people. So all might come. Some, none may come. Some may come. No, he came to save his enemies, the Bible tells us in Romans 5. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. None of us would ever have chosen him. It's the same reason dead people don't come out of the graveyard. The people that were given to him before the foundation of the world that he came to live for and die for and be raised for, he will save. Intentionally, on purpose, his name reveals his mission, and his mission will be a success. There's no chance that it will fail. Because, as we will talk about, he is the God-man, Jesus Christ. The eternal Son of God took to himself a true human nature that he might come and save his people. So this ordinary name in that time signified an extraordinary purpose. Jesus was named that name to show and say, He's the one that's going to do this. The Lord will save His people. And when you think about this will help you when you read Joshua. See Jesus in the book of Joshua, right? This Joshua will permanently lead His people into the true and greater promised land which is the new heavens and the new earth. See, that land, that, that geographic place on the earth typifies this true and greater promised land, which will be the entire renewed, purified earth where there is no sin. This Joshua, Jesus, will succeed in saving his people forever, justifying them through faith alone, sanctifying them, and glorifying them, he will finish the work. And he will not just renew his people, he will renew creation. Romans chapter 8. Remember that when we studied? The creation eagerly anticipates the revelation of the sons of God because it will be set free from decay and be a perfect paradise forever. See, this Joshua, this Jesus, this child, the one that Mary is being told about that she's going to bear, King of kings and Lord of lords, ruler, creator of the universe, sustains all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. And he has come to save his people. So first, 
He's no ordinary child because of his extraordinary mission or his mission. Secondly, he's no ordinary child because of his greatness. So he says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She's greatly troubled and trying to figure it out. He says to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found grace. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Now, look at this description. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Most High, a common name for God, especially in the Psalms. You see it all over Scripture. He is the unique, John tells us in chapter 1, Son of the Most High. The monogenes, the only one like Him. The only one who will ever be God and man in one person. With this mission to save His people. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of his father, David. So no ordinary child because of his greatness. But first, let's think about. He is great. I hope this doesn't offend you, but he had an ordinary mother. He had an ordinary mother. Notice she found grace. She didn't deserve it. He had a very godly, we can see that in her, the way she interacts with the angel and, and her submission, her faith. She was a godly young maiden, a young virgin in Israel. But she was an ordinary mother. We're told in verse 7 that she was betrothed. She was a betrothed virgin. And listen, betrothal in that day was more, it was more serious than an engagement when you take a ring and give it to a girl or and make a promise that oftentimes we see broken. In that day, betrothal was more like marriage in that it would, t- it would have taken a divorce to break it. This is a commitment to being married. So she's, she's betrothed to Joseph. She's, she's waiting on that wedding day. Uh, all those things are going through her mind. She's an ordinary Jewish lady who's a betrothed virgin. Gabriel called her, again, favored one, which means grace. Notice this. She was a receiver of grace, not a giver of grace. All the difference in the world. Mary doesn't give grace. She received grace. She was no, listen, I'm not beating her down, but I don't want you to be making a God out of her either. She was no more qualified to be the Messiah's mother than many of the other young godly maidens in Israel. She was graced. She was chosen. Therefore, she was highly favored and blessed. Just like Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't deserve it throughout Scripture. By its very name, grace can't be deserved. Number two, she was not born without original sin, which shows in her being I'm just counteracting some common myths here, okay? 
Mary was not born without original sin. She needed a Savior like every other Israelite needed a Savior. And in fact, that's what she calls God in verse 47 when she says in her Magnificat, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She needed a Savior. I'm going to chip away a little more. I'm not going to do too much of this. She did not remain a perpetual virgin. After Jesus was born, she had other children. Some of which would be very close to Jesus after they were converted, right? But she had other children. It says this in Matthew 1, 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but he knew her not. That doesn't mean he didn't know about her. Okay? Biblically, the word know is an intimate union from which children come. You can explain the rest of that to your kids. It says, he took his wife, but he did not know her until she had given birth to a son. He did. That, what's the implication? He did know her, but he didn't know her until she had given birth to Jesus. After that, then he did know her. In other words, they were intimate and had other children. And there are other verses, but I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Number four, she is an ordinary mother. She's not a mediator between man and God. First Timothy two five, and there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And I can hear some people say, "Well, yeah, 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 we own that, but but it's okay to 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 like go and ask her to pray for you." Did you know that the Bible forbids communication with the dead? It does. She's not a mediator. She would not want you to be praying to her. She, like the Holy Spirit and everybody else, would be pointing you to her son. Mary was a godly young woman who was highly favored to be the virgin through whom the Son of God would be born. An ordinary woman through whom came an extraordinary son. Fulfillment then of Isaiah 7:14 that the virgin would bear a son. Do you, you telling me you believe that a virgin conceived and bore a son? Yeah, I am. The resurrection proves it to be true. I said I told this to y'all before, but we haven't. Even, if you get past the first verse in the Bible, you don't have any problem with the rest of it. In the beginning, God, it doesn't start proving God. Everybody knows there's a God. We just don't like that, some of us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the more we learn about the heavens, the more in all we are of God. Some of us are surprised it's so big. Why would you be surprised? Either he's infinite or he's not. The farther in we look and the farther out we look, we see glory. We see order. We see creation. We see are God revealed to us? So, I'm not making it a little thing, but it's not a hard thing for God. The one who can make the sun stand still without destroying everything. The one who can make axe heads float. I don't know if you've tried that. Get your axe. Take the head off of it. Take it down the river and throw it in the water. 
Unless you have a scuba suit, you'll probably never see that axe head again. But for God to make it float is no big deal. What are you even talking about? Go read Elijah and listen. You'll know. It's in the Old Testament. If you won't believe the virgin birth, you can't have the resurrection. If you're going to be stuck in materialism. She, the virgin, bore a son who was extraordinarily great. Look, look, look back in, in verse 32. He will be great. And listen, that's an understatement. He will be the greatest. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, the only begotten Son, the, the true and unique Son of the Most High who is God and man. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. In other words, this is the one you've been looking for. This is the son of David you've been looking for. This is the king you've been looking for. If you want to go back and read about that, 2 Samuel 7, you you can go back and read that. But God promised David that he would always have a son on the throne. And he would have a son on the throne forever. And all of those in-between kings were just types and shadows of this coming one who would truly fulfill that promise as the son of David being on the throne, ruling and reigning. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus, listen to me, is on the throne. We're not waiting for Jesus to be enthroned. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And when he ascended into heaven, he was seated on the throne. Ruling over God's people. Ruling over everything. And the angel's saying, he's that one. This one. I can just imagine. She's kind of gotten over the fear and the shock a little bit. And now all of these promises she's been reading her whole life are starting to fire in her mind. She's connecting now. Oh my goodness, we're talking about the Messiah. Wow. If you're not familiar, you can start in Genesis and read all the way through the Old Testament and you see Jesus in all of it. I mean, think about Genesis 3.15. One is coming who will crush the serpent's head and be injured in the process. That's the first gospel. About the ram God provided to be sacrificed in place of Abraham's son. All of the lambs and sacrifices of the Old Testament. All of that was typifying Jesus, the true coming Messiah King, the one would take the throne, the true and greater throne of his father, David. And he reigns forever. Look at verse 30, 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, over Israel, and his kingdom there will be no end. He will reign and never stop reigning. Start hearing the hallelujah chorus in my head. He will reign forever and ever. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. This son that you are about to have, Mary, is the Messiah. 
your hope of hopes, the one you've been waiting for and watching for. Yeah, you don't fully understand his mission, but you will, that he's coming and he's going to be great and he's going to reign forever. Think about Isaiah 9, 6. This is just one. We, we remember 714 in Isaiah and we remember Isaiah 9, 6 around the, the, the Christmas season. Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall... And look at all these divine names given to him. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now watch this. Of the increase of his government. Notice his government starts small, and his kingdom starts small and increases. That's why I know it's already... One of the reasons I know it's already started... Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Mary, this child that you are about to have is the great Messiah you've been hoping for. And every promise represented by this promise to David that I'm mentioning, every promise in the Old Testament that was made about him will come true in him. And he will save his people from their sins. So this one is great because of no ordinary mission. Because of his greatness, he's not ordinary. And then thirdly, He's no ordinary child because of his purity. Look in verse 34. Now, Mary's question differs a bit from Zechariah's question, doesn't it? Zechariah's question, and the reason he was disciplined and made, he was put in a shut-up for a while, was that he didn't believe it was going to happen. He questioned whether the angel's word would take place. Mary didn't question whether they would take place. She was just like, I don't understand this. Listen, I know enough about the birds and the bees to know that there's some prerequisite steps to having a baby. By the way, that's a man and a woman with the equipment God gave them coming together and knowing one another, as far as I'm going, parents, and having a child. She's like, listen, I mean, this hadn't happened to me. This has not happened to me. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Literally, literally, it says, since I do not know a man. Doesn't mean she didn't know any men. She was betrothed to Joseph. But, you know, that thing that needs to happen to produce a baby, that, that's not happened here. And that's the point. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a miracle. And he wouldn't be born pure. As we see, but she had Mary has a legitimate question. This is faith. This here is faith. Just asking how such a thing could be. How will this be since I am a virgin? That word literally means virgin. Not going much further on that, but that's what it means. She's like, nobody's ever told me another way for this to happen. So how is, it, how is it going to be? And look at this uh, uh, reasonable question gets an extraordinary answer. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Think back to Genesis 1. You find the Spirit there? Hovering, brooding. 
working in creation, culminating with the creation of Adam and Eve. And Adam was created pure. Foreshadowing the second Adam to come, who would be created in the womb by the Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, here's the point. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Every other person ever born since Adam in the fall through the union of husband and wife were born inheriting the guilt and corruption from Adam. Born with original sin. Born with corruption. But this son, this second Adam, because the Holy Spirit's power is working to create this son in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Yes, she will sustain him and feed him with her body while he's in the womb and outside as he's growing up. But sin is not being passed on because this is a miraculous creation of the Spirit in the womb. And a lot of people talk about how that could be and how God did that and all that, and and none of them know for sure, and I'm not going to bore you with all that. The point is, what the angel said is true, that this will be a supernatural conception, that the Holy Spirit will create in you this Son I'm telling you about. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, He will be holy. He has to be holy. He can save no one if he's not holy. The Son of God, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, taking to himself a true human nature, born of the woman. Created, conceived in the womb by the Spirit's work. It's a special, it's a holy, it's an extraordinary child that is being born. The Holy Son of God. See, Jesus, as I said, was born without original sin. He was born supernaturally, but here's the catch. He was born supernaturally, but not in a way that makes His humanity different than ours. Read Hebrews 2, 10 and 11. You'll see he was made like us in all points with one exception, except without sin. He's truly human, truly God in one person. He was conceived uniquely of a woman by the Spirit. So he was guarded from original sin and stands uniquely parallel to Adam in his original creation. It's holy. See, this one, Mary, this one that you're about to have, this one that you don't really get how it's going to happen, this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is the holy child that you have been looking for all your life. The one who will save his people from their sins. What did John call him in the the Gospel of John? John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God when he pointed his disciples to him. Behold, the Lamb of God 
It will take away the sin of the world. This lamb will be successful in taking away the sin of the world. All of those lambs and and sacrifices in the Old Testament covered and pointed to this lamb who would come and actually succeed in answering, paying for the sins of his people. This lamb, the divine lamb, the human lamb, the God-man lamb, would die for the sins of his people and it would be accepted. See, here's the point we don't want to lose when we're celebrating Christmas and the Incarnation. And it's not morbid, it's glorious. He was born to die. But effective in his death and saving his people. He's not still a little cherub baby. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings who lived for His people, died for His people, was raised for His people, is reigning for His people, and He's coming again someday. And when He comes, His work will be finished and we will be like Him. See, the Scripture says things like this, that that the Gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that's all throughout the Old Testament. That he was buried. He really died. And that he was raised the third day. Victorious. Proving it all true. And that he ascended. Into heaven. From which we await him. To come again. Children as simple as John 3.16. And you know. In this way God loved the world. Is how that should be translated. In this way God loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him, literally believes into Him, whosoever trusts Him shall not perish but have everlasting life because this one came to save His people from their sins. Mary, this is an extraordinary child that you will have. Coming through an ordinary woman who has been graced. Graced to give birth to the Son of God. The God-man who will save His people. We're just really scratching at the surface this morning of the Incarnation. So it's go and think and dig and look at other scriptures. And just ponder the magnitude of God's love. That we could be called the children of God which is what we are. How do we apply this text quickly? First, I just want to ask you a few questions. Number one, has his mission reached you? Has his mission reached you? John 1, 11 to 13, he came to his own, his own people, and his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. In mass, we know some, mostly they did not. But to all who did receive him, what does that mean? How do you receive him? Who believed in his name, He gave the right to become the children of God who who believed in his name, who believed he is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is the son of God. He's the God man who came, who lived in perfect fulfillment of his own law to provide a righteousness for his people, who died to pay the sins for his people and was raised, proving it all true and offers salvation to us as a free gift as a result. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You'll have to repent to believe. You'll have to turn from unbelief and going your own way. And you'll have to have faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll need to see your sin and the misery it has produced. There needs to be conviction in your heart to see your lostness and also to grasp that mercy is available in Christ so that you turn and trust in Jesus. Are you trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone this morning? Is your faith for eternal life in Jesus. You know, the old EE question is a pretty good one, rightly, rightly understood. If you should die today and stand before God and He should ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would be your answer? Well, I did the best I could. I mean, my parents, my parents raised me in a Christian home and they taught me to, 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 to try to do right. And, and I, I've gone to church and I, I've given to the church and I've read my Bible and I've prayed and I, I've even taught to other people about Jesus. I, I, I've done the best I could. Is that the right answer? That's the wrong answer. You're depending upon yourself if that's your answer. You think you have to be good enough to be saved. If that's your answer. No, he was good enough for you to be saved. And his death was sufficient for you to be saved. So that salvation is a free gift. So your answer should be, I am not worthy to enter your heaven, but Christ, my Savior, has lived for me and died for me and been raised for me. In other words, the answer is Jesus, not you. Your parents can't save you. Your Bible reading or giving or church attendance or, or, or none of cutting the neighbors, none of that can save you. Your hope must be in Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the only one who fulfilled the law perfectly. He's the only one who paid the penalty for all of my sins. And he's the only one raised from the grave, proving it all true and willing to give me salvation as a free gift. I'm, I don't ever tell you to pray the sinner's prayer because there's not a sinner's prayer. There's a lot of sinners who prayed in the Bible. And they prayed in different ways. I mean, the tax collector is a good example, though. He beat his breast and looked up to heaven and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you come to that point where you've reached out to God for mercy because you see your lostness and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, today's the day. Not tomorrow. God gave us His Son to live for us and die for us and be raised for us. And on the basis of His gift of His Son, in the end of Acts chapter 17, 30 and 31, He says He, can, he now commands all people everywhere to repent and believe. Have you turned to Christ? If so, His mission has reached you. Question number two. Has His greatness humbled you? What do you see people doing in the Bible? And I'm not telling you you have to literally fall on your face. But when you see people in the Bible who really get who Jesus is, as one of my old buddies used to say, they suck marble. They, they hit the floor. They bow. He is Lord. You don't make Him Lord. He's Lord. Have you submitted to His Lordship? If you love me, you will keep my commandments, he said. 
Are you striving to keep His commandments because you love Him? I didn't ask you if you fall short and still need to confess sins and if you're battling and hate your sins. and all. That's a good sign. Because when we're glorified, we won't have to do that anymore. But is your attitude toward Christ one of reverence and worship and submission? Or are you still trying to get Him to prove Himself to you? Well, if you'll do this, I'll do that stuff. You're going to look at that cross and Christ dying for you on that cross and you're going to ask something else? That's wicked. That is wicked. Bow before him as Lord of lords and King of kings, the Lord who would sacrifice himself for you, the Lord who has purchased you to be his own, the Lord who promises to take you all the way home. And he's real with you, right? He tells us that in this world we're going to have trouble. Listen, there's no shortcut in that. But we have victory even in the trouble because he says, I have overcome it for you. Has his mission reached you so that you trust him and his greatness humbled you so that you're bowing before him? And see, it's only in that position then that his purity can comfort you. Has his purity comforted you? He was pure for you. See, when we, get the, when we really get the meaning of the great exchange, we'll be different. He took my sin, my record of debt, of sin, of breaking his commandments, what proves that I deserve judgment. He took that on the cross with him and paid that penalty. It was obliterated on the cross. There's no more record of debt for me. Not because I've been good enough, but because he has. And then that righteousness he earned by fulfilling the law and thought, word, and deed, he gives that to me. So if you go back and read, I think it's Zechariah 3 in the Old Testament of the high priest Joshua who was cleansed from his filthy robes and put new vestments on. That's a picture of this. When I come to faith in Jesus, all my sin is washed away. Those old dirty rags of sin are taken off of me and his perfect, beautiful robes of righteousness are put on me. If he's not pure, that can't be done. He doesn't have any purity to give me. But because he was miraculously conceived in the womb and protected from original sin, he has this purity. Have you rested in his righteousness? The world, the flesh, and the devil are going to try to keep you in a place where you're saying to yourself, I'm not good enough. And if you come up to me and say, I'm not good enough. I'm going to say, ding, 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 ding. Yes, right. You get it. That's the whole point. You're not good enough. Stop trying to be good enough. I'm not, I, no, I didn't say don't try to obey him out of love. I'm talking about quit depending on what you do for your acceptance with God. You aren't good enough. Outside of Christ, you can't, one, you can't put one scintilla of righteousness on the scale because it's all corrupted by sin. But you can rest, if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, you can rest in him and know that all of your sin has been dealt with. Washed away. So what did, what, did, what did Isaiah say? Though your sin be like crimson, it shall be a little less like crimson. Is that what it said? It shall be white as snow. If you're trusting in Christ before the throne of God this morning, you're pure. You're his child. It's dealt with. Because of his purity, His righteousness has been gifted to you. 
So rest in his righteousness. Rest in his sacrifice. This one Mary was highly favored to deliver miraculously is the great one, is the extraordinary child. The Messiah, the one who would save his people, the son of the Most High, who is on the throne now, seeing to it that this gospel gets to the ends of the earth. This is no ordinary child. This is the extraordinary child, the son of the living God who came to save us. This one was born in humble circumstances, circumstances that would never convince anyone that he was someone special. But he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he offers eternal life to those who trust him. I'm going to close with this from Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, another one we sing around this time. Part of that hymn says this, Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit. Rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all sufficient merit. Notice not ours. Raise us to thy glorious throne. Charles Wesley wrote that. Come let thou long expected Jesus. So I end just asking you this question again. Have you trusted him? He is the way, the truth, and the life. Hopefully, He is your life. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for humbling yourself to save us. It is so hard to imagine the one who created and sustains all things and upholds the universe by the word of his power was laying in a feed trough being cared for by Mary and Joseph. This is no ordinary birth and no no ordinary child but the Savior of the world born humbly under his own law to fulfill all righteousness And though deserving only blessing, willing to go to the cross and suffer physically horribly and yet more significantly spiritually drinking that cup of wrath through our sin dry and being raised the third day proving it's all true. Thank you. Help us to trust you, believe in you, to love you, and to pour ourselves out to serve you. To not depend upon our own doings to make us right with you. But to trust in your life and your death and your burial and your resurrection for our redemption. And out of the new hearts that you give us then from there seek to, out of love for you, grow in obedience to you. Lord, we praise and thank you. We pray that you would be saving the lost and sanctifying the saved you would bless us and prepare us now to receive communion. It's in the holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a couple of songs now and the men are going to pass out the elements for communion. Um, Just stay seated as we sing and hold on to the elements until the end uh, so that we can partake together as, as one body. But I would just say this, this is, what is communion? What is the Lord's Supper? 
Well, like in that upper room that night when he broke bread and he distributed to his disciples and told them what it meant, that it, the bread signified his body and the blood, the, the, the cup, the, the wine, the, his blood, his sacrifice for his people to save them. And just as around that table, you know, he's passing those elements out and, and that supper is pointing to him, so that's true today. These elements that we're going to distribute point to his broken body, point to his shed blood, point to his sacrifice of himself on the cross for his people to save his people. And the other significant things, one of the other significant things that takes place here in the Lord's Supper is that we eat it, right? We eat the bread, we, we drink the cup. That signifies that we're trusting in him. And God works through those gospel means to strengthen our faith, to fortify our repentance and faith, to grow us in grace. So my, one, the reason I'm saying that to you this morning is that this is a meal for those who trust Jesus. This is a meal for Christians. So if you are a believer and, and a member of, a, of an evangelical church, a like-minded church, then we would invite you to participate. If you're under discipline from another church, don't take it. Come talk to us about that. If you haven't made a profession of faith and been baptized, especially I'm talking to your parents where your kids now, then, then don't take it. It's a meal for Christians. If you're holding on to sin that you refuse to relinquish to God, don't take the supper. Come talk to us. Notice what I didn't say. If you're a believer who hates their sin and is fighting against sin and seeking to be free from it, then you come to the table. This is fuel for your repentance because it's not the power is not in the elements. The elements are gospel elements. We look through the bread to his broken body, through the wine to his shed blood. We look to the cross through these. And this one who was born miraculously in Mary's womb, who was conceived and then born being God and man in one person, he sacrificed himself for us. So as we... As we partake of these elements, we, we, we see them being used by God's Spirit as, a, as gospel instruments through which we, we, we refresh and renew our faith. We're strengthened in our faith and repentance to walk with this Jesus that we're trusting and following. So I'm going to pray, and then the men are going to distribute the elements while we're seated and we're singing, and then we will partake together when all the elements are out. If you want to talk about these things, feel free after the service. We'll be here for a meal, so be happy to happy to talk with you about these things. But let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, how how can we thank you for the fact that Jesus, your son, is the true and greater Passover lamb? That this meal that was celebrated for eons as the Passover has been transformed into the Lord's Supper, simplified and transformed so that that bread broken is a symbol of your broken body, Lord Jesus. And that cup poured out is the new covenant in your blood. So, Lord, we pray that you would take these ordinary elements and use them for an extraordinary purpose which is to nourish and strengthen and feed your people's faith. I pray for those that might not know you, that you would work repentance and faith in their hearts so they would turn to you 
And for those of us who do, who are owning our weakness and need and seeking to walk with you out of love for you, feed us. Feed our hearts and our spirits with yourself as we look to you through these elements. And in our hearts, feed upon you and your sacrifice by faith. So bless us as we receive your meal today to be looking to you, to be trusting to you, and to be for your spirit to be at work in us. Lord, we thank you for this meal. And we pray 